like you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. You know, the subject of angels has become a popular one in recent years. You can go in secular bookstores today and find volumes of books on angels. You can buy figurines and cards and whatever associated with angels. There are New Age channelers who claim to give angel readings. There are mediums who will put you in touch with your angel guide. We have popular TV shows like Touched by an Angel. In fact, people today are much more likely to embrace the concept of angels than they are the claims of Jesus Christ. Angels were also a popular part of Jewish thinking in the first century. They rightly viewed angels as the highest beings in God's creation. Angels appear throughout the history of Israel. Way back in the Garden of Eden, we see angels. They appeared to Abraham, to Moses, to Daniel. The Jews viewed angels as sort of the mediators between God and man. In fact, as we'll see next week, angels actually delivered the law to Moses. So angels were an integral part of the Jewish religion. They had God up here, and then they had a whole lot of heroes in their religious past. And then along comes the message of the gospel. And the message of God, the gospel is there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other name by which we must be saved. And these Jews have embraced that message, but now some of them find themselves looking over their shoulder back at their old religion. And it's starting to look pretty good in their rearview mirror. And so the writer of Hebrews sits down and pens this letter to proclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He wants to tell them that Jesus is better than everyone and everything else. And having shown that Jesus is greater than the prophets in verses 1 to 3, he's now going to show that Jesus is greater than the angels in verses 4 to 14. And he begins by setting out his premise in verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels. Now that's clear. Jesus is better than the angels. Now your Bible may read being made. Cults like to point to this verse and say, see, Jesus wasn't God. He was a created being because it says He was made. But it's interesting, the Greek word used here is not the word poieo, which means to create. It's the Greek word genomai, which means to become, which tells us Jesus became better. You say, well, Dan, if, if He became better than the angels, then that implies that He was at one time lower than the angels. That's right. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. I'll give you a preview of what's coming. Chapter 2 and verse 9. But we do see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. When did He become lower than the angels? When He became a man, and specifically when as a man he went to the cross. So when did he then become higher than the angels? 
Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 1 because verse 4 is not a new sentence. It's really the continuation of verse 3. And verse 3 says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. He became lower than the angels when he became a man and went to the cross, but then in his exaltation, he took his place above the angels. Now, what is it that makes Jesus better than the angels? Well, the writer is going to give us five reasons. And to support those five reasons, he quotes seven Old Testament passages. Now, just as a footnote, if you take these quotations in Hebrews chapter 1 and you go back to the Old Testament, you will find that they don't line up exactly with the way your Old Testament reads. And the reason for that is that the writer is not quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament. He is quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. He's quoting from a modern version of the Old Testament. And so there are slight discrepancies when you read what you read here in Hebrews chapter 1 and what you find in your Old Testament, which is another reason why I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews because Paul almost always quotes from the Hebrew Old Testament. The writer here is quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, in what ways is Jesus better than the angels? I see five ways. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is He has a greater name. Look again at verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. What is His excellent name? Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did He ever say, Thou art my Son, Today I have begotten thee. He has a more excellent name than they. And what is that name? Well, he quotes here from Psalm chapter 2 and presents the name. The name is my son. Now, Psalm 2 is a great psalm. I wish I had the time to go back there, but there's a great verse. One of my favorite phrases in all the Old Testament is found at the end of Psalm 2. After saying, he is my son, it says in the last verse of Psalm 2, literally, kiss the Son, S-O-N. What a great idea. Kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son because God says He is my Son. And the writer of Hebrews says, rather sarcastically, which of the angels did God ever say that to? And the answer is none. Now, corporately, the angels are called the sons of God in passages like Job 1.6 and Job 2.1, but only Jesus is given this title in the singular, unique sense of the phrase, my son. Now, I have great respect for John MacArthur. In fact, I think John MacArthur will probably go down as one of the greatest Bible teachers, not only of our time, but probably of all time. I think he's a great Bible scholar. However, I disagree with John MacArthur on this passage. Uh, he holds the position that Jesus did not receive the name Son until His incarnation, and then that He gave up the name Son when He ascended back into glory. In fact, he uses Philippians 2.9, Therefore also God hath highly exalted Him, and given him a name which is above every name. That when Jesus got that new name, that he put off the name Son. 
So he says that son was a name reserved for his time on earth. In fact, let me quote what he says, because this is what riled me up a little bit. He says, it is his human title, and we should never get trapped in the heretical idea that Jesus Christ is eternally subservient to God. Don't let anyone tell you that Christ is the eternal son. Well, call me a heretic if you like, but I'm going to tell you this morning that Jesus is the eternal Son. He was the Son before He was born, and He is the Son today. He has always been the Son, and He will always be the Son. In fact, to see this, just go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. It says, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Who made the world? His Son. And then you come to verse 3, and He says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Who is presently holding it all together? The Son. And then you come to the end of verse 3, and He says, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is seated today at the right hand of the majesty on high? The Son. He was the Son when He created this world. He was the Son when He came and purified our sins. He is the Son today, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In fact, over 50 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, John wrote these words in John 20, 31. These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. He doesn't say, I want you to believe He was the Son. He says, I want you to believe that He is the Son. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Who do we have fellowship with? His Son. You see, He is still the Son today. In fact, Jesus addressed the church in Thyatira this way, in Revelation 2.18, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet like burnished bronze, says this. See, this is the exalted Christ describing Himself. And what title does He use? He says, I am the Son of God. You see, I would say to you that Son is not a temporary name for Christ. It is not some inferior name for Christ. In fact, if it were, then the argument the writer of Hebrews is making here wouldn't make any sense because he says here in verse 4 that it is a more excellent name. You say, but Dan, doesn't the word today in verse 5 indicate that Christ's sonship began at a point in time? That sounds like he became the son when he was born. Well, if we look closely at this quotation in verse 5, it's not referring to the day of incarnation. It's referring to the day of resurrection. In fact, let me show you that. Take your Bible and look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Paul is preaching in the city of Pisidia Antioch. And in Acts chapter 13, notice what it says in verse 33. 
God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten Thee. You see, the today in Psalm 2 is not the day of incarnation. It's the day of resurrection. He is not pointing to the little town of Bethlehem. He is pointing to the empty tomb. Even though Psalm 2 sounds a lot like a Christmas verse, it's actually an Easter verse. It's referring to the day when Jesus conquered death and showed Himself fully and finally to be the Son of God. That's why Romans 1.4 says, Christ Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. You see, the resurrection is the final, ultimate confirmation that He was not just the Son of Mary. He is the Son of God. It's the final confirmation that He actually has that most excellent name. And then to further reinforce his point, the writer quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14 as he continues in verse 5, And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now if you go back to that verse, the immediate application is to David's son Solomon. But as we read the passage, we find out that he's talking about an eternal kingdom, and he's talking about the promised seed of David, which is the Messiah. And so he's talking about Jesus Christ, and he says here that he is the Son of God. And so the first reason Jesus is greater than the angels is because he has a greater name, Son And then the second reason, he has a greater status in verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 43, and the point is obvious. If angels are worshiping him, then he's greater than the angels. Now let's dissect this just a little bit. Look at the word again. Now in the the Greek language, word order doesn't determine meaning. You can kind of stick a word anywhere you want to. Uh, English is a tougher language that way. And so this word again, we're really not sure where it lies chronologically in the verse. It can read, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, which would then be referring to the second coming of Christ. Or he can be saying, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. In other words, again means, here's another quote. And that's kind of the way I think he's saying it, because if you go back to verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 2, and then he says, and again... 2 Samuel 7, then you come to verse 6 and he says, and again, here's another quotation from the Old Testament, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 32. And then I want you to notice the word firstborn. The term firstborn doesn't always mean born first. In fact, in Exodus 4.22, Israel is called the firstborn. Israel was not first in time, they were first in priority. They were first in status. Firstborn refers to the place of honor and the place of power and the place of privilege. It is connected with the eldest son because he was usually the one who got the birthright, which was the place of privilege, the heir of the fortune. In Psalm 89, 27, David is called the firstborn. 
Now think about it. David was actually the eighth born in his own family. Why is David called the firstborn? Well, if you read the rest of that verse, it says this, Psalm 89, 27, David is my firstborn because I shall make him the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, firstborn doesn't speak of time. It speaks of rank and status. And that's why Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that doesn't mean He was the first one created because He was not created. It means He has the highest place. He has the highest status. And that's why Deuteronomy 32.43 that is quoted here says, let all the angels of God worship Him. Now, I want you to understand something. No created being is or ever was worthy of worship. When Peter came to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, it says that Cornelius fell down and worshipped Peter, and Peter stopped him. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 8, John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. And what does the angel do? He stops him and says, I'm a fellow servant of yours. Don't worship me. Worship God. No created being is worthy of worship. But having said that, guess what? Jesus accepted worship. In Matthew 2.11, we're told that the wise men fell down and worshiped Him. In Matthew 8.2, the leper bowed down to Him. In Matthew 9.18, it says the synagogue official bowed down before Him. In Matthew 14.33, after Jesus calmed the storm, it says those who were in the boat worshiped Him saying, you are certainly God's Son. Now notice, they worshipped Him and said, you are God's Son. God's Son is not an inferior title. It is a title that deserves worship. In Matthew 15, 25, the Canaanite woman bowed down before Him. In John 9, 38, it says, the man born blind worshipped Him. And in Matthew 28, 9, it says, After His resurrection, the women and His disciples came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Listen to Revelation 18, 1. It says, After these things I saw another angel coming down out of heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with His glory. Here's one angel coming down, and the earth is illumined with the glory of this angel. Angels are awesome, glorious creatures. But in the presence of Jesus Christ, they bow down and worship Him. And then a third reason. He has a greater position in verses 7 to 9. Notice verse 7. And of the angels, He says, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Now, that's a quote from Psalm 104.4. What does it tell us about the position of angels? Well, first of all, it tells us about their creation because the word makes here is the Greek word poieo, which means to create. So it tells us here that angels are created beings. That's their creation. Secondly, we see their characteristics. They have two characteristics. He calls them winds and he calls them a flame of fire. Now, what does he mean by winds? He calls angels winds. What is the characteristic of wind? 
Wind is invisible, it is powerful, and it moves rapidly. And that's characteristic of angels. Angels move rapidly. In fact, the Bible tells us some angels had six wings. They fly around this universe, and they are powerful. Best example of that is in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 19, we're told that one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. They are winds because they are invisible, swift, and powerful. And then he says, they are a flame of fire. Fire in the Bible is always associated with judgment. They mete out God's judgment. They are divine executioners. When the two angels came to Sodom in Genesis 19, this is what they said to Lot. We are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. They are divine executioners. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's their characteristic. And then we see their calling. Notice the phrase at the end of the verse, His ministers. That's the word for servants. What are angels? They are ministers. They are servants. They are carefully crafted, created servants. That's their position. Now in contrast to that, what is the position of Christ? Look at verse 8. But of the Son, He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The difference between angels and the Son is that they are created. He is God. Now this is a quote from Psalm 45, 6 and 7, and it gives us one of the most clear, emphatic, irrefutable proofs of the deity of Christ in all the Bible. I don't know how much clearer it can get than this. Jesus is God. But he doesn't stop there. He quotes from this passage because he wants us to understand some other things. Not only is he God, but he is also king. Because notice verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He is on a throne holding a scepter, which is the symbol of rule and authority, and his kingdom is forever and ever. He is the eternal king. And I like it that it says he has a scepter of righteousness. You ever get tired of politicians who say one thing and do another? Jesus is the king, and notice what his motives are. Verse 9, thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Now, we usually find it easy to embrace the first part of that equation, but they are inseparable. Jesus loves righteousness and He hates sin. You ever want to understand how Jesus hates sin? Just go to the temptation in the wilderness and see how He dealt with that. Just go and read about the incident where He cleansed the temple. Or better yet, go to the cross and you'll see how much He hated sin because He gave His life to take it away. 
You know, we like to get by by saying, I love righteousness and I like sin. But that doesn't fly. If we are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we have to love what He loves and we have to hate what He hates. He loves righteousness and He hates sin. He is the King. But this passage also tells us something else about Him. He is not only God the King, He is God the Messiah. Look at the rest of verse 9. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Now that word, or that word anointed is the same word for Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. And this is a great picture. We have God anointing God. God the Father anointing God the Son as the Messiah. And what was the purpose of the Messiah? He was the one who would come and suffer in our place and then rise to the place of majesty. He is the anointed one. And so Jesus has a greater position. Angels are created beings. Jesus is God. Angels are servants. Jesus is king. Angels are the companions, he mentions at the end of verse 9. Jesus is anointed above them. And then the fourth reason. He has a greater nature in verses 10 to 12. Now in verses 10 to 12, the writer quotes from Psalm 102, 26 and 27. And I don't want you to miss the connection here. He says in verse 8, of the Son he says, quoting Psalm 45, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And, verse 10, continuing, of the Son he says, quoting from Psalm 102, thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth. Now, he's still speaking about Jesus, and the statement that he makes here in verse 10 is actually a more profound statement of his deity than he made in verse 8. Because if you go back to the Old Testament passages, you'll find that the word that he used in verse 8 for God is Elohim. The word he uses here in verse 10 for God, referring it to Jesus, is Yahweh or Jehovah. And this spoke especially loud to the Jews of the first century because this was a name in the Old Testament Scriptures that they had so much reverence for that they never spoke it. They would come to it in their reading. They would not say the name because it was such a sacred name reserved for God alone. And the writer uses that name to say, and of the Son, he says, Thou Yahweh in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth. That name belongs to Jesus. And it tells us what His nature is. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah God. And just to solidify that truth, He adds several dimensions that are only true of God. First of all, He tells us He is Creator. Verse 10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. Now we went into this in detail last time in verse 2. Jesus is Yahweh, the creator of all. And then secondly, he is immutable. That's a theological term, means he never changes. He is immutable. Look at verse 11. They will perish, speaking of the earth and the heavens, 
but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou will roll them up, as a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same. They will perish. That's what scientists call the law of entropy or, or the second law of thermodynamics. The universe is running down. But the Creator, Jesus Christ, remains unchanged forever. That's why we later read in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's unchangeable. And then secondly, or thirdly, He tells us He is eternal at the end of verse 12, he says, notice, and thy years will not come to an end. In the beginning of this quotation, he says, in the beginning he created it all, and in the end he has none. He is eternal. So Jesus is greater than the angels because of his nature. He is Yahweh, the immutable, eternal creator, God. And then the fifth reason. He has a greater destiny in verses 13 and 14. Notice verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? And that's a quote from Psalm 110.1. And again, he gets a little sarcastic. To which of the angels did God ever say that? See, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated in the place of power and glory. And the picture here is that he's waiting for a footstool. And what is that footstool going to be? Well, his ottoman that matches his throne in this picture is his enemies. The destiny of Jesus Christ is that everything and everyone in the universe will be subject to Him. That's why Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. Jesus' destiny is that He is the sovereign ruler. You say, well, what about the angels? Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The destiny of the angels is to serve those who are the heirs of salvation. Now, who's that? That's us. Angels are helping us. You say, well, how, how are they helping us? Well, you remember back in 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha's servant got all intimidated by the armies of Syria? And Elisha prayed a simple prayer. He said, God, open his eyes. And his eyes were open, and he saw the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. For a brief moment, the invisible became visible, and the mountain was full of angels ready to fight the battle for them. Who was it that delivered Lot out of Sodom? Two angels. Who shut the mouths of the lions when Daniel was in their den? Daniel 6.22 says an angel did. You remember who delivered Peter out of prison in Acts chapter 12? It was an angel. 
They are helping us. Now, don't get carried away with this. Some people see an angel under every rock. And, 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 but, but God has sent them out to minister to us. I've often said, boy, that was a near miss. And I don't know what was going on behind the scenes that God may have been doing to provide for me. I remember one time I went on a trip. I used to have a Jeep, and I went on about a 2,000-mile trip. And I came back into town, and I was sitting on King's Highway right next to what used to be the Standard Station at Town Plaza Standard, sitting there at the stoplight, and my wheel fell off. And I reflected on it later, and I thought, you know, some angel was like holding that wheel on until I got back to Cape Girardeau and just said, boom, right in front of a gas station. They are sent out as servants, and who are they serving? They are serving us, the heirs of salvation. That doesn't mean they're going to protect you from everything that happens, because their goal is not to protect you from everything that happens. Their, their goal is to fight the spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle and we're, we are unable to cope with that spiritual battle. And much of what they do is they come in and they, they fight the enemy that we have that is far greater than we are. That's why Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's a fascinating verse. Be careful who you're hospitable to because you, you don't want to pass up an angel. They may be around. What's the point of the message today? Jesus is no angel. He has a greater name, Son of God. He has a greater status. He's in the place of worship. He has a greater position, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has a greater nature. He is Jehovah God, Creator of all who is never changing and never ending. And He has a greater destiny. Sovereign ruler over all. I want to tell you something. The angels know that. And that's why they serve and worship Him. The question I want to leave you with this morning is, what are you going to do? Are you going to bow your knee before Jesus Christ and worship Him and serve Him with all that you have? Or are you going to walk away? I'm going to invite the